0: Hi guys, before we start the show I just want to throw out a couple of ways that you can support us and help to keep the podcast sustainable. Now we're an Audible affiliate so if you fancy an audiobook subscription service hit them up through our link which is audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories and you get a free month including one free book of your choice. Alternatively you can support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories and over there you can get bonus episodes, early access to the show Access to our Discord and access to all my research notes. All those links will be in the show notes or over at the support page at darkhistories.com. And if times are tight and you're a bit hard up, and I don't think we can all appreciate that, it's no worries. You can support the show by just sharing it around on social media with your family, friends, and all those other good people. All right, let's crack on with the show. Cheers. In 1848, the Fox sisters practised their trade of mediumship in New York, igniting the imaginations of thousands and blazing a now often travelled path. Despite their controversial practices and eventual confessions of hoaxing, they are still considered by many as playing one of the main roles in the formation of popular spiritualism in North America, and certainly amongst the most famous spiritualists the world over. Half a century prior to their headline-grabbing public seances, however, and just 12 years after the penning of the U.S. Constitution, a large portion of the population of a small coastal settlement in Maine bore witness to an equally bizarre occurrence. It was to culminate in one of the earliest, and possibly even the very first, documented account of a ghostly haunting in North America. Among accusations of fraud, witchcraft and demonism, the residents of the Blaisdell farmhouse in Sullivan communicated with the spectre of a local dead woman known as Nellie Butler. Unlike the attention-grabbing headlines of the Fox sisters, it's a story that fell into obscurity, yet at the time it was spoken of as one of the most extraordinary ghost stories on record. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Welcome back, Season 2, Episode 18 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, glad to be back at the mic. Hope this finds you all enjoying life. England, we got the last throes of summer and the, the nights are starting to draw in a little so I thought we could roll with that vibe this week and we're going to be looking at a story that's a bit more ghostly than we've been doing of late. Even if you're kind of maybe not into ghost stories so much, I'm pretty sure you won't have heard one quite like this. First though, I just want to give a quick thank you to our new Patreon supporters, Vicky, Steve, Sean and Trevor. So really big thank you to you guys and thanks as always to everyone else who continues to support and thanks also to Emma who very kindly donated this month through coffee that was very touching and gratefully received so thank you very much for that and you know to talk about support a little bit not going to go into it too much but things like you know this episode that you're listening to right now it, it just wouldn't have been possible quite literally without the support from Patreon and coffee and such because none of the primary sources are available online, and they're all quite uh, not particularly easy to come by. They're quite obscure, kind of small print runs. So, given that, you know, it all costs money, and it's it's really great that I'm able to you know buy them basically through the help of the support. Because I think it's going that kind of extra mile with the research that it's, you know that's important for me, and I, and it's what I hope differentiates this podcast from so many others and, and I hope you can tell. So you know, that's only made possible really and it's only made sustainable by everyone's kind support. So yeah, really thank you about that. You know, thanks for that. It's 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 really helpful. If you'd like the support, I'll I'll go into more detail at the end of the episode. But, you know, for now, let's crack on with it and get started. This is America's first documented ghost the Nellie Butler Hauntings. Perched at the head of Taunton Bay in Hancock County, Franklin, Maine, was an East Coast settlement with a frontier personality. Founded in 1764, its soil was harsh and rocky, making farming difficult and only yielding results after the undertaking of backbreaking work. What it lacked in natural agricultural productivity it made up for in its strong, densely wooded areas, allowing for a handful of sawmills to coexist without any local tensions, producing lumber for buildings, ships, and railroad sleepers. Throughout the colonial era, shipmasts were a solid source of trade across Maine, and sawmills took advantage of the tall pines to secure contracts with the British Navy, allowing for industry to grow and flourish. Sooner rather than later, however, The independent spirit of Frontier, along with a host of political disagreements and social tensions, led residents to push back against the British monopolisation of ship lumber and eventually to revolution. Following the revolution, Franklin was a settlement like many other in Maine. Its farmers watched the incoming, unpredictable winters with anxiety. The land was cheap, but the living could certainly be rough, with predators, difficult soil, harsh frosts, pest infestations and drought, just a fraction of the hurdles that kept many holdings at subsistence levels. Religion gained traction through a myriad of revivals and evangelical preachers who sought to bring new forms of worship to the Congregationalist majority, from Quakers to Methodists, as well as a newfound interest into the exploration of the divine, paving the way for the spiritualist influx during the 19th century. Franklin was, then, like any other frontier settlement in North America, at once small and tightly knit, a place where shouldering your neighbours' burdens was as important as personal prosperity, yet fractured and socially complex. Set in this landscape of an unforgiving, uncertain future, the story of Nellie Butler begins. David and Joanna Hooper had married and settled in East Franklin, Maine, during the latter half of the 18th century. David Hooper had fought in the American Revolution and now a veteran he set about family business with Joanna Hooper who birthed nine children in the nine years from 1775 to 1784. The second of these children was a girl named Eleanor who was born on the 25th of April 1776. She was known locally as Nellie and at the age of 19 she met George Butler, a young sea captain whose father Moses had also fought in the American Revolution and was regarded as one of the first English settlers of Franklin. They owned a sawmill and their family was generally well to do. The pair married and lived together on Butler Point in Franklin, a heavily wooded area lying on the eastern banks of Egypt Bay. Two years after their marriage, Nelly fell pregnant. However, She became the unfortunate victim of a complicated childbirth and died on the 13th of June 1797, less than a day after the passing of her newborn baby. She was buried on Butler Point in an unmarked grave. For the now-widowed George Butler, life stood relatively still for a few years, until the winter of 1799 fell across Maine, bringing with it not only bleak, cold nights, but also a rather peculiar and controversial series of events that would see his life flipped upside down and seemingly caught in a cycle of union and loss. The Blaisdell family was headed by Abner Blaisdell, another veteran of the American Revolution. He married Mary Card, but after her untimely death, he remarried Mary Simpson, and the couple established themselves in Sullivan, Maine, a small settlement lying 10 miles to the southeast of Franklin, on the eastern side of Taunton Bay. It was a tight-knit rural community that consisted of only around 20 families. Just like Franklin, it too thrived on the shipbuilding economy and had several mills powered by the streams that forked and spidered throughout the area. Abner and Mary Blaisdell had seven children, five boys and two girls. The first girl was named Hannah and was born in 1780, and the second, Lydia, was born five years later in 1785. The Blaisdell house was situated in the north of the town on a 100-acre farm plot and Lydia and Hannah spent their days sorting and picking cotton fleece in the cellar of the family home. Like many at the time, Abner was a religious man and the family followed in step, praying together and seeking to live their lives right in the eyes of God. As the harsh bleak winter of 1799 fell upon Sullivan, Lydia Blaisdell, almost 15 years of age, found herself in a severe struggle against a form of pestilence. Sick and lying in bed, her immune system was succumbing to a disease that held no prisoners and could very easily have taken her life. It was during this time of struggle that the first of several unusual encounters would occur in the Blaisdell farmhouse. Coming from the cellar, Lydia heard a series of knocking sounds. After a search of the cellar was conducted and no origin was found, Abner called the family together to pray, ensuring that whether or not the sound came from heaven or some other earthly hijinks, the Lord would eventually let them know either way. It wasn't long before the knocking sound progressed and the Blaisdell family began hearing the voice of a woman coming from their cellar. Always upon checking, they found no trace of intruder or hoaxer. As December turned into January and the new year passed, these peculiar visitations progressed a step further, leading to ghostly apparitions of a woman shrouded in white, standing in the cellar and openly conversing with the Blaisdell family. This ghostly visage claimed to be the spirit of Nellie Butler, the very same Franklin woman, daughter of David and Joanna Hooper, and wife of George Butler, deceased almost three years prior. This apparition appeared at first only to the Blaisdell family, but news like this spreads quickly in a small town and Nellie had some big plans that would require the belief of more than just the Blaisdells. For some time, possibly up to two years prior to the appearance of Nellie Butler's ghost in the cellar, Lydia Blaisdell and George Butler had been developing something of a relationship that appeared to be leaning towards courtship. This was opposed by Abner Blaisdell, who took some disagreement with the 29-year-old man knocking about with his 15-year-old daughter. Commonly, we see in history women marrying at far younger ages than today. However, this was not the case in Maine in the late 1700s, and 15 was still unusually young. Not to mention that the age gap of the pair exacerbated matters. After conversing with the ghost in late December, its disembodied voice flitting around the cellar from corner to corner, Abner now saw a change of heart. Nellie Butler, it seemed, not only condoned the marriage, but ordered it must happen. It was her divine mission. The parties must and would be joined, and what God hath joined together let no man put asunder. Who was he to stand in the way of God's will? On January the 1st, the ghost ordered Abner and Lydia to go and visit Moses Butler, father of George, to deliver her message that she wished the pair wed. The message was to be delivered alongside a verse from scripture, Mark 10, and specifically the lines, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Lydia and her father made the perilous journey to Franklin in a terrific snowstorm, crossing the precarious ice sheets of the frozen Taunton River. Along the journey, Lydia became upset. Apparently, she too was not overly keen on the concept of marriage, especially one ordered from beyond the grave. However, Nellie appeared to her, consoling her and spurring her forwards through the storm. When they arrived at the house of Moses' butler, they were told in no uncertain terms that their journey had been in vain. Moses was himself also stoutly against the union. Abner insisted that it was the will of his deceased daughter-in-law and that they came with her message, that the Spirit had travelled with them, and if they wished a miracle as further proof, that they should wish it, and it would happen. As one might imagine, this went down about as well as a red coat in Boston, and the pair were sent away, leaving Moses Butler in a state of disgust. As the minutes and hours after their departure passed, however, he began having second thoughts. Why would Abner come all this way in such poor weather conditions? essentially risking his life to strike a proposal for a marriage that he himself had opposed for so long. Lydia and her father returned home only in time to hear once again the familiar knocking coming from the cellar, announcing the arrival of Nellie Butler in their home. This time, Nellie wanted the messengers to go and see David Hooper, her own father and father-in-law to George Butler, to arrange for him to come and see her spirit for himself. Not overly thrilled at having to trek another six miles in a snowstorm so soon after returning, the pair left it until the next morning to carry out Nellie's latest orders. And so, on the morning of January the second, Lydia and Abner Blaisdell stepped out into the harsh winter weather once more to make the journey to the home of David Hooper in Franklin. This time, their expedition was successful, and David Hooper agreed to visit the Blaisdell residence later that day to confirm the identity of his daughter. They also visited George Butler at the same time, delivering the same message and inviting him also to visit his deceased wife in their cellar. Upon their meeting with the apparition of Nellie Butler, we have the written testimony given by both men that show their conviction and belief with what they saw, and that it was indeed what Abner had described as the ghost of their deceased relative. By the request of the spectre sent by two messengers, I went to Abner Blasdell's house, And by conversing with she, obtained such clear and irresistible tokens of her being the spirit of my own daughter as gave me no less satisfaction than admiration and delight. She gave a reason satisfactory to me why she put me to the trouble of coming there instead of her coming to my house. The testimony of George Butler, who showed up at the Blaisdell home shortly after David Hooper had finished conversing with the spirit, proceeds much along the same lines. When I was called to talk with this voice, I asked, Who are you? It answered, I was once your wife. The voice asked me, Do you remember what I told you when I was alive? I answered, I do not really know what you mean. The voice said, Do you not remember I told you I did not think I should live long with you? I told you that if you were to leave me, I should never wish to change my condition. But if I was to leave you, I could not blame you if you did. This passed between me and my first wife while she was alive and there was no living person within hearing but she and myself and I am sure that this was never revealed to any person and no living person could have told it to me before the voice did. There was something appeared to my view right before me like a person in a winding sheet and her arms folded under the winding sheet and on her arm there appeared to be a very small child. By this appearance I did not know possibly but I might be deceived. I reached out my left hand to take hold of it. I saw my hand in the middle of it, but could feel nothing. The same evening, it appeared and disappeared to me three times. In his own testimony, Frederick Hausoff, who apparently visited along with George, confirmed that he had seen George Butler place his hand on the apparition of Nellie Butler and saw his hand pass through it. David Hooper took his experience at the Blaisdell home and his meeting with the deceased directly to Moses Butler where he confirmed the truth to him, that the ghost of Nellie Butler had arisen in the cellar of the Blaisdell home, that he had spoken to it and that its wish was a divine order for the marriage of Lydia Blaisdell to George Butler. And so, with a heavy sigh, Moses Butler resigned to the inevitable. After all, who was he to stand in the way of God's will? On the 5th of January, he set off towards Franklin to inform Abner that he would give the marriage his blessing. With both fathers now reluctantly on board, and it was with some reluctance, Abner apparently still treated George Butler with a level of disdain. All that was left to take care of was the marriage date, which was quickly set up to take place on Butler's Point on May 29th, 1800. As soon as the marriage was made public, dissenting voices began to appear. There were many in the local town that thought Lydia was attempting to dupe George Butler into marrying her, whilst others mulled over the possibility that necromancy was at play, and the spirit was nothing more than a demon or demon familiar. When Sally Wentworth, Nellie's sceptical sister, visited the Blaisdell home on January the 3rd, along with her husband Moses Wentworth and George Butler, she said of the spirit, We heard the sound of knocking. Lydia spoke, and a voice answered, the sound of which brought fresh to my mind that of my sister's own voice, in an instant, but I could not understand it at all, though it was within the compass of my embrace, and had it been a creature which breathed, it would have breathed in my face. I passed through the room which led to the cellar into another room, and there I was much surprised when I plainly understood by the same kind of voice, still speaking in the cellar, these words. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. From this time, I cleared Lydia as the voice and accused the devil. It was an opinion she would hold until her dying day. Her voice, she said, sounded like the voice of her sister not in health, but while she lay on her deathbed. On the same day, Captain Paul Simpson visited the cellar to witness the ghost on insistence by Paul Blaisdell, one of the Blaisdell's sons. As was becoming customary by now, they went down into the cellar, put out the dim candlelight, and waited for the knocks. Nellie rapped as expected, and when Paul spoke to her, she replied the same words as though she spoke to Sally earlier that day. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. One might think that a ghostly visitation might conjure up a degree of fear in a superstitious population like that of Sullivan in 1800, but it seemed Nellie had a certain way with words. After a little discourse with her, their fears were entirely dissipated and succeeded by a singular pleasure. So delightful was the mode of her address and conversation. In fact, Nellie would routinely reassure visitors to fear not, and Abraham Cummings, a travelling evangelist, theorised in a later letter on the subject that he believed the reason Nellie would knock to announce her presence, like that of a visitor to her front door, or of only answering once spoken to was to avoid startling anyone. This measure of thoughtfulness extended further, according to Cummins, being also the reason Nellie would generally only appear in the cellar, to allow the Blaisdell family to retreat to their homely comfortable rooms at will without fear of a haunted spirit rudely gate-crashing their private chambers of rest and relaxation. In general, this was a courtesy observed fairly faithfully by the spirit, however she did also appear in other spots around Sullivan on a handful of occasions, visiting houses as far as five miles from Blaisdell's farm. Her apparitions, however, were not always indoors. Paul Blaisdell testified to seeing the spirit in the fields around the Blaisdell house in the latter half of January. I particularly observed that she never touched the ground. Her raiment appeared as white as possible. The next evening she reproved me in the hearing of several persons because I had not spoken to her because I had spoken against her. She told me she had come on God's errand and that if I opposed her I opposed him who sent her. The spirit asked me if I lived in such a manner as I would wish to die. In the five months between ordering the marriage of Lydia Blaisdell and George Butler until the day of the union, news of the spirit began to spill from Sullivan Harbour and spread around the local towns. People would come from the many townships dotted around Hancock County to see the apparition of Nellie Butler gathering in the Blaisdell cellar crammed in to see what all the fuss was about. She routinely conversed with visitors for upwards of two or three hours at a time, on all manner of topics. Not all of the visitors were so readily willing to believe, however, and many who came to see the events for themselves were either skeptical of any spiritual activity full stop, or were actively hostile to the idea of a ghostly apparition, suspicious that it might be some kind of demon or demon familiar, conjured up by a form of necromancy or witchcraft by Lydia. There were other voices too within the town that suspected Lydia of a rather more straightforward, earthly-based deception in order to ensnare George Butler into a communion and they were growing louder by the day. As for Lydia, she herself still held her own reservations which she recounted to friends and culminated in her machinations to run away before the marriage could take place. The Blaisdells had relatives in York and she devised a plan to jump a ship docked in Taunton Bay to go and stay with these distant family members. She told George of the plan, breaking off any relationship they once had and their current engagement. George, who by now was very much behind the idea of marriage to the young Lydia, protested this idea, but it was no good. It would take a whole lot more to keep her in Franklin, and a whole lot more is what she got. Nellie Butler's ghost spoke to Lydia in front of several witnesses, urging her to stay and insisting that if she were to sail, her afflictions would sail with her. It would all be for naught. And so, as the spirit wished, Lydia Blaisdell and George Butler were married on the 29th of May. The two families gathered on Butler's Point to carry out the union. With their wishes fulfilled, the ghost of Nellie Butler may well have shrunk off into the corners of an unspoken history, spanned on only by rumours and the hearsay of the local townsfolk. Nellie, however, was only just getting started. On the day after Lydia and George were married, Nellie took it upon herself to visit the newlyweds with the message of prophecy. Lydia, she claimed, was not long for this world, she went on to explain that Lydia would fall pregnant and give birth to just one child before an untimely death would take her, just as it had happened to herself. And with the prophecy delivered, the cellar of the Blaisdell home fell quiet for a while. But not the voices of the local dissenters, who still whispered about Nellie. Was she a twisted scheme devised to ensnare George Butler to Lydia, or was she a demonic presence? Rumours floated through the wooded hills and farmlands of Hancock County, and showed little sign of slowing. After a 63-day absence, the ghostly activity launched into overdrive. On at least 29 occasions, in August of 1800, she was witnessed by over 100 people. Always the ghost would invite the witnesses into the cellar. Abner Blasdell would blow out the candlelight, plunging the room into darkness, and the visitation would commence opening as it always did with a series of knocks from Nellie Butler to announce her arrival. During these visitations, she was not always visible to everyone in the room at the same time. At times, she never appeared at all. On others, she appeared only to a select few, whilst others standing mere feet away saw nothing. She always appeared wearing a glowing white dress or shroud. At times she wore a cap, and others not sometimes she was seen cradling the body of her dead baby in her arms. Her visage was described by Mary Gordon in her later testimony. At first the apparition was a mere mass of light, then grew into a personal form, about as tall as myself. We stood in two ranks about four or five feet apart. Between these ranks she slowly passed and repassed so that any of us could have handled her. When she passed by me, Her nearness was that of contact, so that if there had been a substance, I should have certainly felt it. The glow of the apparition had a constant, tremulous motion. Her voice would flitter across the room, instantaneously moving from a distance 10 or 12 feet from the spectators, at others leaning into their ears and speaking next to their heads. All of this carry-on invited many sceptics, Some professed that the voice of the spirit was merely the voice of Lydia Blaisdell. However, Nellie addressed this directly by sending Lydia away in front of these sceptical inquirers. About 14 persons, by the direction of the spectre, went into the cellar. As soon as they were there, the spectre said to Lydia Blaisdell, Go up and sit with others on the kitchen hearth, that this company may know that it is not you who speaks. After she was gone up, The ghost conversed with the company on several topics suited to authenticate her mission. Likewise, Nelly spoke of her past life to others in an attempt to win over their belief. She mentioned several incidents of her past life, known only to her husband as he declared, and asked him if he remembered them. He said yes. She asked him if he had told them. He answered no and of such a nature were these incidents as to render it utterly improbable that he ever should have mentioned them before." She told Abner Blasdell that his father, who was sick, was in heaven praising God with the angels. In fact, he had died seven days prior, unbeknown to Abner at the time, and later confirmed by his family in York that they had yet to send the news at all. She routinely invited people to stand as near as they pleased to her, to handle her if they wished, and to not be afraid and to ask as many questions as they liked concerning her past life, apparently responding to them all with satisfactory answers. The hauntings had reached a boiling point by mid-August. As more and more people crowded into the cellar to speak with Nellie, more too spoke in hushed tones of the delvery from the Blaisdell basement. As if to counter all this talk in the town of her spirit visitations being the work of the devil or demonic witchcraft now threatening to overshadow the events taking place there themselves, Nellie began preaching more and more on religious topics, confirming to onlookers that they were safe in her presence and had nothing to fear. On the 1st of August, when witness Paul Simpson asked her if she loved Christ, she replied, Yes I do, and begun singing hallelujahs. This was a practice that she now maintained. When on the 7th of August, Sarah Simpson asked her if she came from happiness or misery, she replied, I am from above and am come on God's message, breaking out in a chorus of more hallelujahs. On the 4th of August, she addressed the topic directly with Thomas Aran, a sceptical local who had proclaimed to many around town that the spirit was the work of the devil. You have often said that I am a devil or a witch, she said whilst addressing him. I am from above, praising God and the Lamb." By the night of August the 9th, things were getting a little rough down in the Blaisdell basement. A large crowd had gathered and many of them sought to confirm their belief that a fraud was being played out by the Blaisdell family. There was a lot of pushing and shoving, and several people took it upon themselves to impersonate the familiar knockings of Nelly Butler. This eventually led to the undesirable elements of the crowd being removed from the situation by Abner Blasdell. Paul Simpson Jr. was one such sceptic who had left disappointed after seeing the scenes that night. As he walked home however, he decided that his feeling of dissatisfaction would not dissipate unless he could uncover the deception. He returned to the farmhouse and once allowed into the cellar by Abner, was invited to light a candle and search until his heart's content. He gave the following account of his investigation. I came out last and was careful and watched so that I was sure that no person went down. Also, the door was fast. Then again, we heard the sound of knocking. It was addressed and conversation followed, in the midst of which, Abner Blasdell said to me, if you think any living person talks, go forward and grasp that person. I went forward a few steps, but was so convinced that nobody was there that I consider all further attempts as useless. He then saw the apparition of Nelly Butler, and described it in a fairly interesting manner. I saw the apparition at first about two feet in height, but as it drew nearer to me, it appeared as tall as a person. I saw this appearance passing close by me and from five or six times. At last it diminished to about a foot in height and then vanished. By mid-August, things had finally reached a head, and the people of Franklin and Sullivan were no longer speaking quietly. Divisions sprang as different sides of the argument as to the veracity of the events were now outwardly spoken of, and the events in the Blaisdell cellar were the talk of the town. On the night of the 13th to 14th of August, 47 people gathered to see the spirit of Nellie Butler. Never one to let the people down, Nellie had something special arranged for the masses. She sought to end the voices of dissent once and for all. At one o'clock in the morning, she commanded the congregation to march to a neighbouring house belonging to one of the loudest sceptics in the village, James Miller. The walk covered two miles, and on the journey, the group was ordered to file side by side in groups of two singing the 84th Psalm as they walked. Nellie assured them that she would follow behind the group as they walked. Several witnesses claimed to have seen her walking with them as they marched through the night whilst others saw nothing. When they reached James Miller's house, the crowd squeezed in through his front door, whilst Paul Blaisdell asked him if he would take him down to his cellar. Miller complied, and when he stood below the ground, the voice of Nellie Butler rang out around him. I have come to let you know that I can speak in this cellar as well as in the other. Are you convinced? Apparently, he was, as he too joined the group now gathering outside his house awaiting the reappearance of Nellie. Once she appeared, the spirit then commanded them to continue marching. She would walk alongside Lydia Blaisdell at the head of the parade, Lydia shrouded in a black cloak. This, the spirit remarked, would finally put an end to the dissenting talk that Lydia was herself behind a nefarious scheme of deception or witchcraft. They then turned back to the Blaisdell farmhouse, where the bizarre march was to end. Several people, including many of the skeptical, testified to seeing Lydia walk alongside the spirit, singing a hymn as they shuffled along. Following the parade, things began to settle down on Blaisdell Farm, but not before the ghost of Nellie Butler would command one last act. She ordered for her deceased child to be dug up and reburied closer to her own grave on Butler Point to enable them both to rise up to heaven together on Judgment Day. Over 80 people from four different towns gathered on the hillside to bear witness to the solemn affair, as the remains of the newborn were moved 30 feet up Butler's Point to be reinterred next to the remains of Nellie Butler. For the most part, this ended the visitations for good. There was to be just one final twist. Throughout and despite all of the strange happenings of August and the following reinterment of Nellie's newborn child in the autumn, Lydia and George had settled into their married life. They had moved in together and lived on Butler's Point in Franklin, and Lydia had fallen pregnant with their first child, who was expected in March of 1801. The childbirth was not an easy one, and just as the ghost of Nellie Butler had prophesied ten months previously, neither Lydia nor the baby survived the ordeal. Both were buried alongside Nellie and her child on Butler's Point. Shortly after her death, George Butler placed all of her belongings into a boat, and floating it from Butler's Point, he set it ablaze. As it was pulled by the tides out across the bay, it unfortunately sailed directly past the Blaisdell farm, who saw the move by George as an affront on their daughter. George, they assumed, was cutting all ties with the memories of his deceased wife. This rift would continue, with Abner never forgiving George, and eventually led to the splitting of the local church 16 years later, following an investigation into the matter, with members siding with both Abner and George. George went on to remarry for a third time to a woman named Mary Guggins, and the couple had four children together. Nellie appeared only once more, and it was to the wandering evangelist, Abraham Cummings. He had not been around for much of the events of the hauntings, though he had witnessed a voice speaking in January of 1800, but he left feeling unimpressed. Upon his return to Sullivan, however, he had found the situation irresistible. During the remainder of the haunting, he had collected all of the eyewitness testimonies of the local people. He then published all of these testimonies, along with a collection of relevant letters in a work that detailed the events surrounding Sullivan and Franklin, and the haunting of Nellie Butler. In 1806, he had been alerted by two men that the spectre had been seen outside his house in the fields, and going out to see for himself, He wrote of what he saw. Looking toward an eminence 12 rods distance from the house, I saw there, as I supposed, one of the white rocks. This confirmed my opinion on their spectre, and I paid no more attention to it. Three minutes after, I accidentally looked in the same direction, and the white rock was in the air, its form a complete globe, white with a tincture of red like the damask rose, and its diameter about two feet. While my eye was constantly upon it, I went on four or five steps, when it came to me from the distance of eleven rods as quick as lightning, and instantly assumed a personal form with a female dress. I went into the house and gave the information, not doubting that she had come to spend some time with us as she had before. We went out to see her again, but to my great disappointment, she had vanished. The Nellie Butler haunting is a complicated event with many social and religious threads. Proponents and believers cited how she appeared in both the day and night times, in the Blaisdell cellar, in open fields and in four other houses around Franklin, the house of James Miller half a mile away, as well as of Sarah and Samuel Simpson, Josiah Simpson and Abraham Cummings, one, three and five miles away. They mention all the times she openly invited people to approach her to touch her and feel for themselves. How at times she appeared for some and not others, though they stood alongside one another in that dimly lit cellar. It's fairly easy to point fingers towards Lydia, however, how would Lydia have known the vast amount of information needed to answer so many questions concerning Nellie Butler's life, some of which was extremely personal and intimate? And why would she order the reinterment of the child on Butler's point? On the other hand, Dissenting voices find it all too easy to highlight the marriage as a key factor in a hoax designed to hoodwink the fathers into allowing a forbidden relationship. The travelling evangelist Abraham Cummings was probably the spirit's greatest sympathiser and he took it upon himself to carefully document and transcribe the entire affair. However, one has to be aware of the religious perspective of the time. Cummings would have been evangelising in an age when materialism was rampant. For him, collecting the eyewitness accounts of the Nellie Butler haunting and publishing them would have been an effort to back up his religious agenda and to counter the arguments that there was no immortal soul. In the end, we are left with nothing but circumstantial evidence for either side. Despite this, it remains a fascinating tale and one that could well be the true origin for spiritualism in North America, preceding the accepted norm by over 50 years the truth of the matter will remain a mystery. Jeremiah Bunker, one of the strongest sceptical voices at the time of the hauntings, said of the ghost of Nellie Butler, I thought then, and ever since, that the whole was a deception, for I cannot see how there could be such a clear personal shape where no living person was. So thanks for listening. I told you at the start, right, I don't think you would have heard a ghost story quite like this one. So we're going to kind of unwrap some of it after this short ad break. As mentioned at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible.com. As an affiliate, Audible has given us the chance to offer our listeners a 30-day free trial, and that includes an audiobook of your choice. I've actually been a member of Audible myself off and on for... Over a year or so now, so I'm pretty happy to advertise the service. For those that don't know it, Audible's an audiobook subscription service that gives you one credit for every month you're a member. You then go ahead and you spend your credit on any book that you like, and if you decide to quit your membership or put it on hold, you keep all of your old audiobooks. With our link, audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories, you can sign up for a free month, and that includes a free audiobook of your choice at the same time. If you don't think it's for you at the end of the month you can cancel your subscription before the 30 days are up and you've lost nothing you've gained an audiobook and you've helped to support the show Actually I don't have my credit this week from Audible yet so I haven't bought anything new but I've still got a backlog of the history of the Templars which I'm yet to listen to as well as No Such Thing As Society which is a social history of Britain in the 1980s so there's a couple of books that you know I'm, I'm yet to listen to that i that look excellent and you know there's all sorts of books like that on there it's not all history but there is a lot of great history stuff on there they got desktop, android and ios apps and they all sync up and they also give you hassle free returns if you find you spent your credit on a duffer which is something that I did when I found that I'd spent my credit on a german version of the lost world so they took it straight back and I got my credit back and everything was good So if you think that sounds like it might tickle your fancy, head over to audibletrial.com forward slash dark histories and sign up for your 30 day free trial. Ads are a pain in the butt right, so do you want to know a good way to avoid listening to them? If you sign up to Dark Histories Patreon, you get ad free versions of the show with daily access to episodes, access to bonus content, stickers, exclusive discounts on the t-shirt store and all that other good stuff. You get content from me, you get videos, I give like little running commentary and behind the scenes of how I make the show, and by being a member, you're directly supporting the show. You can sign up for as little as $1 per month, and you can help make Dark Histories the best it can be. For more information, check out our website at darkhistories.com, or pop over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash dark histories. Right, enough of all that. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the episode. Welcome back. So Nellie Butler. I can imagine there's probably gonna be an awful lot of sceptical people out there and I think that's sort of fair enough. Just to mention, if you are sort of looking for more information on this, don't even bother looking online. There's there's about four or five websites and they all sort of copy and pasted each other for the most part it seems. They all give wildly inaccurate information from things like the dates. Just straight made up guff about the opinions of some of the main characters that are just absolutely miles and miles away from the reality. So you know, just go straight to the book. And they've got the original sources, all the original testimonies. They're all primary sources. Now the original is called a quite unwieldy title of Immortality, proved by the testimony of sense, in which is contemplated the doctrine of spectres. And the existence of a particular spectre addressed to the candour of this enlightened age. Which is a wonderful title uh, by Abraham Cummings. So, you know, he he is as wordy as that throughout the entirety, just so you know. Um, but that book's available online and I'll put a link to it in the show notes uh, on the website darkissues.com. The other book that I'd recommend is The Nellie Butler Hauntings, a documentary history. And that's by Marcus Labrizzi and Dennis Boyd. And they actually reprint quite a lot of the uh, original source written by Abraham Cummings, but they give footnotes throughout, and a lot of it is notes from the original text. You know, notes written in the sideline or in the footnotes by Abraham Cummings. So that's really excellent, and it gives you a a kind of slightly deeper insight into it. What I will say is, is neither book really gives you a very clear picture of what happened and, you know, putting it all together is that was really the difficult part. But yeah, if you are interested, say I'll, I'll put links to both of those books. Say one of them's freely available online. The other one is a book you have to pay for, but it's that they're, they're interesting books and, and really they're the only places that you can find information about this say online. Don't even bother, it's just not worth it. So to get on with it, I think for me it's fairly likely that or I feel like it's fairly likely that it was all probably a bit of a hoax that's got a bit out of hand to say the least I think it was possibly Lydia most of the Blaisdell family and possibly George even that were in on it I think George would possibly had to have been in on it you know and I say that not because I'm sort of super sceptical about ghosts and such, although I am sort of a sceptic. I say it more just because it all seems very, it all seems to fit together a little too well. The the fact that the ghost sort of ordered this marriage, I mean, why? You know, it doesn't make sense, why would she have ordered that? But, you know, she did and next thing you know, you know, the parents are into it and saying, yeah, okay, we'll we'll let them get married, so you know, it seems that that was perhaps the genesis of it, and it, it maybe spiralled out of control a little after that. I don't think perhaps they realised that people were going to take it the way they did in the town, which was kind of short-sighted of them, really. A little bit naive. But, you know, so that's sort of, I would say, like, my my opinion as an overall. But there are some things, you know, with the whole story. what What... If it was Lydia and the Blaisdells and perhaps George as well that were sort of committing a hoax, what was the burial of the baby, like the, the reinterment of the baby, all about? Because that seemed to really benefit nobody. It was it was a strange thing for any of them to really sort of request because it didn't didn't have any sort of benefit for anyone involved really, unless it was sort of like a bluff or a, a kind of. Uh, th- you know throw it in there to sort of put people off the scent I'm not sure as to how they did it it came as no surprise really that they they, they sh- blew out all the candles and you know did the seances in the cellar in the dark it's quite you know it's fairly common for that time for seances or you know what would become fairly common when this sort of thing became more common that You know, you you would undertake seances in pitch black, which obviously the idea being that you can sort of get away with a lot of more shifty work, I guess, uh, a lot more shifty activity in the dark. But then how people commented that a ghost sort of lit up the room and was sort of surrounded by this aura, so how did they do that? Some people said that it was possibly a magic lantern, which is a sort of medieval-looking primitive projector and it it would project images from a glass plate onto a solid surface. So there's that but it was only still images and that doesn't really explain how it would have passed between the people and how people could put their hands through it. It would explain to some degree how people could put their hands through it but it would have to have been projecting onto something and you couldn't put your hand through that something so that's, I think that sort of rules out a magic lantern. Really, the fact that it moves in and out of people is, is would also sort of rule out a magic lantern because you would need a direct the, the the source of light would need to be shining directly onto something. So if it was hitting in between people, that wouldn't make much sense. And to be honest, I think it's a little bit sort of technologically advanced, and I think it's much more likely that it was just someone dressed up in a white sheet. But the only thing with that is I'm not sure how it really explains the description of her giving off the aura that lit up the whole room. But as I was reading it, I thought, well, perhaps it could be someone in in a white sort of sheet or shrouded in this white sheet holding a candle or something because the the flickering would give it that... So I think someone describes it as tremulous. It, It was a constant tremulous motion. I wondered if that would sort of come from the candle flickering underneath a sort of sheet draped over the top of someone, but you know when I thought about that, the first thing I thought was that's a bit of a fire hazard like if that if that's what they did I'm surprised she didn't just go up <laughs> she just spent two or three hours hiding under this blanket with a candle. she only took like one little slip of the hand and she could just set the entire thing in place, which would have been not funny, I suppose, but it certainly would have um exposed the fraud wouldn't it the problem with both of these though is how it only appeared to certain people at certain times. Like some people said, oh, "I didn't see anything." And others would be standing right next to them saying they saw it. And interestingly, there was a quote that said she only would show herself to people that wished it. And if you if people didn't wish to see her because they were scared or whatever, she she wouldn't show herself to them and there was, I'm not sure which witness it was, I'd have to look it up, but there was one witness that said that she, before she went into the cellar, she to herself wished not to see it, she didn't tell anyone that, she just sort of um sort of went down there with a kind of trepidation I guess and sort of wished to herself that she didn't want to see it and she didn't, but the people next to her did, I found that quite interesting. You know, how, how does that work if it was someone in a sheet that, I mean, it just does, 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 well, doesn't work. It's that, it's that basic, really. And the other thing is, is if it was sort of Lydia or, or perhaps her sister Hannah, because you don't hear much about Hannah and I wonder where Hannah was in all of this. But if it was someone under a sheet, say, how did she so, know so much about their past lives? And you, you could argue kind of my first thought was well George was probably feeding her the information but she would have had to have known an awful lot to answer questions for hours upon hours and the fact that she sort of invited the questions I thought that was interesting in this case and and I I don't suppose it's unique but it's fairly surprising that she would invite people to ask any question for as long as they liked and even to come as close as they liked and to touch her if they liked, and things like that. And there were times when Abner said to her, said to the visitors, to the cellar, like, you know, back up, you're getting too close. And this spirit, you know, Nellie Butler, would say to them, no, it's fine, don't worry, you can come as close as you like. And, and I found that quite interesting. It's not often you see that. Often, you know, most times when you see these kind of hoaxes, like seance hoaxes from the latter sort of 19th century moving into the sort of tw- early 20th century, a lot of it was under strict control of the quote-unquote mediums. And, and although there is strict control here in ter- terms of the lighting and such, you know, the fact that there was kind of people sort of crammed in and getting very close and, and the ghost saying, well, don't worry about it, you know, you can come as close as you want. You can touch me. I thought that was... So I thought that was interesting i don't I said i don't think it was unique but it was you know or, or I, I can't imagine it being unique but it, I thought it was interesting in it I'm not going to say it offers it credibility but I'm gonna say it's certainly an interesting fact like you know one, one, one of one the many interesting things about this story really you know and it it made me kind of wonder how they achieved it because I think so i i'm I'm fairly skeptical about the whole story as i'm 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 not necessarily sceptical about ghosts in general, but in this sort of period, although this was before that period, but of that period, the kind of spiritualist movement of the kind of, say, mid to late 19th century and early 20th century, I'm very sceptical of that period because I think there are a lot of people that are just making a lot of money from it and sort of getting quite fame. And, and, and of the biggest ones, almost all of them have been proved or even admitted to have been hoaxes, you know, it sets a sort of precedent for that kind of time period for me. And I, I kind of say I'm very sceptical about it. But then this came before all those, um, which was quite fascinating. Um, and it's really why I kind of pounced on the idea of this episode. We're getting a little bit off track, and I'll get back on it in a minute. But to sort of why I picked this episode was because of, you know, its its cultural significance. Well, there was a couple of reasons. Firstly, it was just, its cultural significance in that, it was, you know, possibly the first ever documented haunting in North America, but I found it really interesting that it was basically buried as well. And and apparently that was more or less a natural sort of happenstance because Abraham Cummings, who wrote the original document, he sort of buried it within, as he got sort of drew to his late latter part of his life, he, he just got obsessed with writing lots of this really kind of heavy, dense religious literature. And so this particular publication of his about the the ghosts of Nelly Butler just sort of got buried beneath like a pile of kind of what you'd have to say was probably religious guff you know sort of this dense heavy obviously antiquated evangelical text so you know it, it was quite heavy going to kind of get through that to find this so it just has been buried for years and i found that really interesting um it's really interesting to kind of dig up something that is effectively really obscure so yeah i mean it was just really interesting that this happened before a lot of the latter sort of hauntings and and séances like like the fox sisters and and, and those kind of guys where the, you know once popular spiritualism really kind of kicked off sort of 50 60 70 years later you know this happened so so much before and 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 it was written about that you know actually this this case had a lot of the hallmarks of cases that would follow years later so yeah I found you know that was really the reason I picked it and and one of the things I found most fascinating about it but to sort of get back to the story something that I thought was quite interesting was um the fact that Nellie would tell people that if they were against her and they were against God, etc. And, you know, she said a few things like that. Quite subtle digs that, actually, if you think about the time period they were in, it would have been fairly dangerous to be... or not necessarily dangerous, but it would have been fairly damning to be tagged with that moniker of being someone who was against God in a, a small, fairly religious uh, community in the wilderness, really. So, you know, actually, that's quite a strong threat that Nellie was doing there. She was sort of saying, you know, if you don't believe me, then, you know, you don't believe in God. Therefore, what do you believe in? You know, are you a non-believer or are you, uh, you know, a witch potentially or, you know, involved in black magic? And all of these questions then arise. And And I say that that would have been... Fairly dangerous in that time period, I would have thought. Say I said use the word dangerous again, but what I mean is, you know, it's not the sort of thing you would want to have been tagged with at that period. I don't think, and I think that was actually quite a smart thing for them to do, to sort of use that threat against them because it's much easier to get people on board when they're obviously afraid of what might happen if they're not on board, and and you could sort of say, well, here's a kind of perhaps an answer to things and why people saw it and some people didn't see it and things like that would be perhaps they were just sort of it all got a little bit emperor's new clothes you know they were saying they saw things when they perhaps didn't just because they were afraid to say they didn't because if they didn't they would might be seen as a non-believer and probably not what you would have wanted to have appeared like but having said that, there were plenty of people that did sort of openly go against it. So who knows? Um, I thought that perhaps, you know, I do think that the, that the Abraham Cummings, who put this all together and published it, I think, he wasn't there for the most part, basically. He was away. Um, he was a travelling evangelist. And he was away for almost all of it. He, he, I think the 3rd of January, he heard talking in the cellar he wasn't actually in the cellar. He was upstairs, and he heard talking in the cellar, and he heard it speak a few words. And he wasn't impressed, and he basically left and said, "It's nothing too much." He actually wrote about it, saying that he wasn't very impressed by it. all And he went away. And when he came back, which was around about August, just as it was kind of kicking off, he was sort of like he he sort of jumped on it, and you can see why when you look at the kind of social and religious climate of the time. You know, for a travelling evangelist, it would have been a pretty strong weapon, I suppose, to use against people that were, you know, the materialists of the time, to sort of have this kind of document of quote-unquote proof. So, you know, I, I, I do think that his kind of enthusiasm for the event is perhaps something that you can't hold too much stock in. But still, you know, he did a good job. By, you know, it's, it's thanks to him really that he took all these testimonies. And whether or not he, you know, he had an agenda, he took them all neutrally. You know that in any any he divides the testimonies into people who believed and people who didn't believe, like proponents and opponents. And you know, he he took them all neutrally. And 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 I think you know fair play and. Again, that's one of the things that make it really fascinating. It makes it probably the first ever documented case in America, which is really interesting. So, you know, despite the fact that you can probably take his words with a grain of salt when he talks personally about it, he he obviously did a really good job with documenting it. The story basically culminates with that huge great funeral march through the town, which is absolutely bonkers. And... Yeah, I think it's what really sets it apart when I said you you won't have had a ghost story like this. My lord. If anyone's seen the original Wicker Man film, it kind of got that sort of impression from it. You know, these people kind of marching solemnly through this town, like the whole town effectively, kind of going to see this guy's house, almost like pitchforks to go and see the kind of the guy that doesn't believe. Uh, You know, he kind of went into his cellar and Nelly spoke to him in his cellar, which apparently you know, changed his mind. But to be honest, if I saw like 47 people pouring into my house in the middle of the night, it was one o'clock in the morning when they did this. If they all just like pile into my house, I'd be like, yeah, all right. All right. I believe you. Whatever. Just get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's not surprising really that he kind of went along, but that was bonkers. And, you know, the imagery was incredible. I thought of that. It was really I mean, what a bonkers story, right? They all just kind of walk along and they see this ghost walking in front of them with Lydia who, you know, why did she need to be wrapped in a black shroud? That was quite interesting. Was it not Hannah under there? And was Lydia wrapped in white and playing Nelly? Who knows? But then some people claim to a sinner and some people claim to, again, have not seen her on the march, so you can't really be sure, I suppose, but but that was my initial thoughts, Were like, right, why is she wrapped in a black shroud? Like, that doesn't need to have happened. She wasn't in a black shroud any other time. Which sort of led me to think that perhaps she sort of switched places with Hannah. Hannah stuck on the black shroud and played Lydia. Lydia chucked on the white shroud and played Nellie. And then they both walked back. And then when they got there, they kind of switcherooed again. That was my initial kind of thoughts. But, you know it doesn't really explain why some people saw it and some didn't. One thing about the whole story, which I'm not really sure about actually, and I, I, I it wasn't written very clearly, and it was all very sort of just loosely hinted, and I say I'm not really sure if I understand the significance or not, so if anyone has any insight, I'd love to hear it, but George burning the boat full of her stuff sort of was not taken very well, Obviously, Abner saw that as as an affront. Now, from the sort of hints in the text, I got the impression that people didn't take it very well because they saw George as sort of burning all her stuff in an effort to sort of cast it all aside and almost wash his hands of the whole ordeal which kind of hinted at that perhaps he knew that things were a hoax and he was just kind of trying to sort of atone or, or sort of, say, wash his hands of everything, like clear himself of it all, say like, you know, right, okay, that's done. You know, after the death of his second wife, perhaps he thought, you know, well, this deception is not such a smart thing. Um, I just want to get rid of it and done of it. That, so that was my take on it, basically, was that he was kind of washing his hands of the whole affair and perhaps casting it all away. I'm not sure if that's correct. I'm not sure if that's the, actually the right interpretation. So if, if anyone else has any insight, because it, it could well be something religious, it might have a religious significance, which I just don't understand, because say, I, I'm, I never really grew up religious. So they might have... A, I did sort of look up some stuff about the history of burning body uh, bodies and possessions in in christianity but but mostly it came up with cremation versus burial and things like that so it, it didn't really give me any sort of cultural insight so yeah if you've got any then you know get get help, get in touch um so that so that's more or less that episode you know let me know what you think i'd love to hear from people um you can contact me contact at darkhistories.com on the email or if you go to darkhistories.com, you can find a link to the Discord server. Jump on there, have a chat with us. We've got a nice little community that talks about episodes and all sorts of weird and strange events around the world and and anything really. It's a nice little community. So yeah, jump on there, have a chat. Tell me what you think. Debate with the people on there. If you you know if it was the believers and the non-believers, I think it's I can imagine that already. See that it's probably going to be tilted in quite a sceptical direction, get involved with the conversation, so yeah, that you can find links to that on darkhistories.com, uh, it's Discord, uh, you'll find links to the Discord server, and also obviously to my email if you want to get in touch with email, so that's more or less that, you know, if you want support, as I said in the beginning, it does really help, uh, you can do so, I've got Patreon, basically the idea of Patreon, if you don't know what it is... So you pay one, three, five dollars a month, and for that you get some things in return, like ad-free episodes, early access, a bunch of other things, uh, postcards, stickers, things like that, all sorts uh, of perks for the different levels. And obviously, you know, it's, it's the price of a coffee or a beer once a month, and it really helps the show out. So yeah, if you'd like to do that, again, darkissues.com, You can find all the details there. I'll probably leave it at that because I really don't like banging on about support you know support if you can and want to don't support if you don't you know it's it's helpful obviously massively but the show's free for everyone and and everyone should enjoy listening to it without me kind of banging on so you know if if you want to help but you can't sort of do it financially just share it around on social media that that's really helpful tell your friends and family all those good people that's really helpful you know, there's all sorts of ways you can support without doing it financially and I say I I don't like banging on about it so yeah, I'll just leave it there Um, darkissues.com you can find links to everything, all our social media Instagram, Facebook all of the support, that's on there and obviously to get involved in the community with Discord or if you just want to email me that's all on darkissues.com you'll find everything, as well as show notes and in the show notes I'll put the links to the books that I talked about in this episode so yeah I hope you have a wonderful couple of weeks and everything great comes your way. Thanks for listening. As always, it's been an absolute pleasure. Sleep tight.